reading Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to give a child in her old age, and she who was unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. You may be seated. I love listening to a young man read the Word of God. Amen. That's awesome. We are going to to think about the birth of Jesus uh, this morning. There's an outline inside of the uh, announcement sheet that you can use to to follow along as we we go through this. And uh, one of the things that we always do if you're visiting with us, one of the things that we always do before we get into God's Word is to ask God to bless us. So I'm going to ask you to join in with with, uh, our church family here as we bow our heads and join our hearts and ask God to bless us as we study His Word. Father, we're we're grateful and astonished and amazed and awestruck and so completely, completely humbled and made modest in in recognition of, of the feebleness of our own powers When we hear these words read, and when we read them ourselves, and we just begin to think about Your love for us as as God the Son was born as a human and lived among us in love, and perfection, and sinlessness. And that You would do that, Father, not just to to, to show the, the greatness of Your holiness, Father, but in that holiness, as it was saturated in, in righteousness and love, would come and, and die with our sins on Your Son, cruelly and brutally on a cross, we scarcely can take all that in. And yet it happened, and we believe it to be true. As great as a mystery the Incarnation is to us, we believe it to be so true. We are thankful, Father, that these have been passed to us through Your Spirit. These words that remind us of Your love and of the distance that Your Son traveled to live among us. And so as we ponder these words, Father, we pray that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said. If you've known me uh, very long, you know that I am a sucker for Christmas music. I just am. Uh, I listen to it uh, beginning right after Thanksgiving. And if I was to be probably uh, more honest, I was probably listening to it on Thanksgiving Day. You know, getting ready for the holiday. I love, I love Christmas. I love Christmas music. What you may not know is that I love Christmas movies. The cheesier, the better. I love, I love uh, the old, those old Christmas movies. I, I think they're wonderful. One of my favorites, 1954, White Christmas. Can you believe that? A modern guy in the 21st century. One of his favorite movies is White Christmas. Bing Crosby, uh, Rosemary Clooney. Who else? Danny Kay. Danny Kay's in it. What a great movie. When I see that color blue, I immediately go to December 25th. Uh, my my uh, next favorite movie is, what movie is that? It's A Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey. And what a great movie that is. It's, uh, it's, uh, in fact, we were. how many of you watched it last night while it was on television? Yeah, some of you are like Ellen and me, suckers for these old movies. But my favorite all-time Christmas movie is this, Miracle on 34th Street. I think Edmund Gwynn is, is my picture of, 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 of Santa Claus. And you know what the plot line is, as if I had to tell you. Chris Kringle shows up at the Macy Day Thanksgiving Parade and he's a little indignant to find that the person that is assigned to be Santa, Santa Claus is a little intoxicated. And so he replaces him in the parade and he does such a great job. He's just a, a fantastic job of playing himself that everyone is enthralled with him and they hire him to play Santa Claus at Macy's department store there in New York City. But then a little bit of worry begins to set in as Mrs. Walker, played by Maureen O'Hara, discovers that Chris Kringle actually thinks that he's Santa Claus. I mean, the nerve of the guy. And the disbelief begins to spread and it avalanches to the point that Chris Kringle is nearly swept out of society and committed to a mental institution, a famous Bellevue Hospital. And the final scenes of the movie are set in the, the, the committal hearing. The final court scene is on Christmas Eve, and Chris Kringle is saved by the letters of children that have been written to Santa Claus and are delivered to the courthouse to Chris Kringle, as Santa Claus uh, delivered there to courthouse into the courtroom. And the judge says that if the U.S. Post Office recognizes Chris Kringle as a real Santa Claus, who is he to argue with that? K, say it, dismissed. Now, watching that movie and during the movie, you can't help but think, you know, it's really difficult to convince people you really are the one person they don't believe exists. It is. Or even to convince them that they're a person that, that they might be uncomfortable believing in. People are thinking in one direction. You're trying to get them to change direction. They're thinking in one certain way with a certain set of facts and you're trying to change that view of those facts and what they really mean when it comes to all of life. It was a problem that Jesus faced in His day. People were asking, always asking, who is He? What in the world? Who in the world is this? There was that day in, in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus has stilled the storm while they're out there on the Sea of Galilee. Everybody thought the boat was going to be swapped, that they were going to be tossed overboard into the Sea of Galilee and destroyed by the, by the, uh, by, by the storm. 
And once that storm, once the water of the, the waters of the Sea of Galilee become like a mirror, the disciples in astonishment ask, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. Sometime later, Jesus has taken His disciples up into the area of Caesarea Philippi. He's getting down towards the end of His ministry. And He gets them alone in Mark chapter 8. And He wants to know, who do people say that I am? They reply, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets, one of the other Gospels adds in there Jeremiah. But then He asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And a lot of times people would get it wrong. A lot of times people would get it flat wrong. Sometimes they would not connect the miracles as they connected to the teachings, as they were connected to a very visible and observable public life. They missed the evidence. And so they would ask things like this, isn't this the carpenter's son? And isn't his mother Mary? And aren't his brothers, you know, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, aren't they here with us as well? One time, they called him a Samaritan, and not in a good way. They thought one time, and even referred to him as a man that was demon-possessed. They said to him in John chapter 8, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. But here's the thing. Trying to figure out who Jesus is is not just a first century problem, it's a modern problem. It's a problem that we come up against every day of our lives. People saying, He's just a man. He's a good man, but he's just a man. Or he's a great moral example, or he's a great moral teacher, or he's a great moral philosopher, but he's just a man. He's just a good man. Now, over the years, I've read to this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's found in the, uh, the second book in, found in Mere Christianity. It's found in a chapter called The Shocking Alternative, right there at the very end of that chapter. And Lewis reminds us that that kind of thinking, that Jesus is just a good man or a great moral teacher, will not do. He writes, and I'm giving you the quote on your outline and up here on the screen. He says, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who, is, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End of quote. Now friends, this is one of the reasons why the Gospels were written. The Gospels were written to keep us from making the same historic mistake that Jesus is just a good man or that He's this great moral teacher. And the, the really wonderful thing about the Gospels is that from the very beginning of the Gospels, in three out of the four Gospels, the story begins with the way He was born. It begins with the birth of Jesus. And it's not just any birth. Jesus is born of a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, God sends the angel Gabriel to a little village in Galilee called Nazareth 
if you read uh, some of the scholars, they think it's a very conservative, albeit a very, very small village to, to the west of the Sea of Galilee. The name itself, uh, Nazareth, sort of connects it to the Hebrew word Netzer, which was uh, a word for branch found in the book of Isaiah, sort of made everyone think that it was a messianic community, a community that tried to live righteously and holy in such a way that the Messiah itself would be born there. And it's really not special, though, in any significant way, at least according to human standards, except that there is a young virgin by the name of Mary who lives there. And Gabriel, the angel of God, who speaks for God, comes to her and appears to her and says, Greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now most people think that they want visions of heaven. And most people think that they, they want to hear God speak to them. And I, and I get that. When you, when you read the account of the Bible, when an angel comes and speaks to a human being, or when the voice of God is heard by people, it scares them to death. They plant their face in the ground. So frightened are they. And most of the time, people fall on their faces, and, and here, Mary is troubled. An angel showing up is not typical. She's wondering, what in the world does this mean? The angel says to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call Him, what? Jesus. Those are troubling words. She asks, how is this to happen to me since I've, I've not been with a man. Now, what is going to happen to her is theologically known as the Incarnation. It's God becoming flesh. But the angel understands that she needs a little bit more than that. She needs some specifics, but that... And, and Gabriel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the what? Holy One... So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And one of the most uh, tremendous statements of faith and obedience and being a disciple to God the Father are found in Mary's next words, May it be to me as you have said. But there's also her husband-to-be, Joseph. Joseph has to be considered. Think for a moment. Can you imagine how it is to hear that your fiancé is with child and she's with a baby, with child? And you know without a shadow of a doubt that it's not yours. And yet Joseph is going to try and spare this young woman of all the different ways that harm and hurt can come to her in that village. He thinks that divorcing her quietly is the answer which kind of gives us a little bit of insight into the kind of heart that Joseph had. That his love for her transcends any compulsion to hurt her deeply. But then an angel comes to him in his dreams and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the baby she has conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. 
And the angel tells him that it is this baby, this baby that Mary is carrying, this baby will save his people from their sins. And Luke explains, and, and, and as uh, Joseph is coming to grips with all that this means, Luke is trying to help us to understand this as well, and he explains that the birth of Jesus is fulfillment of prophecy. That this is not just a happenstance. This is not just some off-the-cuff, impulsive move by God. This birth of Jesus, in the way that it is happening, my friends, is, is fulfillment of an old prophecy. Luke says it, or Matthew says it this way, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when G G uh, J Joseph woke up, the Bible says that he did exactly what the angel commanded him to do. He takes Mary home to be his wife. So sometime later, not maybe very much longer, there is this census that is, that is announced by the Roman Empire. And that census compels Joseph to travel south to a little village outside of Jerusalem. It's a very famous little village in Hebrew history and in Hebrew thinking. It's the little village of Bethlehem. It's the city of King David. It's also Joseph's family town. And that's the place where he has to go with his wife Mary. He has to go there to register. Now, the town, not very big, probably saw at this time, during the time of this census, a very great influx of people, as people who had moved away are now having to come back to register and to pay their taxes. And it's then, while they are there away from home, that the time comes for Jesus to be born. And God the Son, who has left equality with the Father, not something to be grasped, but has left that place of equality with God and has become a human being. Born in a stable because it's the only place left. And Mary, who has found favor with God, has given birth to Him, places this little baby in a manger. And this is very simply the way that Jesus was born into the world. Miraculous. And humbling. And mysteriously in terms of the Incarnation. But it also has great meaning to us. And it means, first of all, that Jesus, when born, began and throughout His life remained sinless. Jesus began and remained sinless. Jesus entered into the world without a fallen nature. The angel referred to Him, and you said it yourself as we read Scripture together. The angel referred to Him as the Holy One. And that He was throughout His 33 years. His sinlessness is attested throughout Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says that He is the Lamb without blemish. The Lamb without what? Spot. John said in 1 John chapter 3 that in Him, meaning Jesus, in Him there is no sin. The Hebrew writer, whoever that is, is anonymous to us. And writing that great letter we call Hebrews, says in the fourth chapter, we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, 
who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet, say it with me, he did not sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that great passage that we say a lot on days like this when we see a baptism and we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus and all that means when we see somebody born again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. His sin, our sins were put on Him in His sinlessness so that we might become the righteousness of God. And all of that is incredibly important for this reason. 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, died once on the cross, died once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but as Peter finishes out that statement, to bring you to God. In His beginning and remaining and dying in sinlessness, He brings all of us in faith to God. But then it also reminds us that Jesus is both God and human. Very important to get that straight in our mind, even though we may not understand the nuts and the bolts of the Incarnation, probably the greatest of the mysteries found in the Bible, that Jesus is both God and human. Now, one of the problems that you find in the New Testament, primarily in 1 John, is this problem of the Antichrist. And it's, everyone has gone everywhere preaching the Word with the Antichrist these days, it seems, and in a lot of ways have gotten it unbelievably wrong. The Antichrist, during the, the time of the first century, during the time that the Apostle John is writing those letters in Asia Minor, was somebody who is so engulfed in the, in the rhetoric and the philosophy and the, and the earthly wisdom of his day that he denied that there was any way that Jesus could leave the Father's side and live among us as a human being. And John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that that's indeed what happened. That that Word that created everything that we, we see, everything that we know, everything that we're able to touch, that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the reason that this John, writing later in life, about these antichrists was so stirred up by it was that to, to deny that Jesus came in a body, a body of flesh, was first of all to say that something that God had created, the body itself, was somehow not good. No, the body was created by God. The, the body, the creation of man was something that God pronounced as tov. It's good. But then when you think about it in redemptive terms, if Jesus is not sinless in His physical body, His fleshly body, then how did He really die for my sins that I've committed in my body? understanding that Jesus came both as God and a human being with a body like ours is incredibly important. But then number three, perhaps the most important, the fact that Jesus was born a human being, left heaven, as Philippians chapter 2 we read earlier reminds us, that salvation must come from God. If Jesus does not come from heaven, we're lost. In Genesis 3, we have the Proto-Evangelium that is the, the first preaching of the Gospel. That's the way that some of the commentators refer to it. That 
that this, there is going to be the cursing of the thorns and the thistles and the cursing of the serpent and, and, and woman and childbirth and man by the sweat of his brow. But the earth itself is going to be cursed. But Jesus, there is going to be one in the future, the seed of the woman, who is going to defeat the work of Satan. And this one is the Christ. And He does what we cannot do for ourselves. God sent His Son in order to bring us back into sonship. And so Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, when the, time set, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. This is something that comes to us in this completely unfathomable love that God has for people. You know, one of the things I, I talked about at the beginning of the movie, uh, the, um, the sermon was these old Christmas movies. And, you know, that I, I guess everybody has a, a degree of cheesiness that they can handle. But, you know, one of the things that has always struck me about these movies, uh, even watching uh, A Wonderful Life last night for, I, I don't know, probably a billion times, and I've told you a million times I never exaggerate, but at the end of that movie, everybody gathering in, everybody pulling this one guy that can't pull himself out of trouble, everybody you know, kind of pooling their resources to pull him out of trouble and friendship and love and what it means to, to, to be loved. I couldn't help. I've seen it a billion times. I, the tears always kind of well up in my eyes. And I know that they well up at certain times in your own eye when you watch these movies. Or when you read the old fairy tales or, or whatever, you, you know, these, 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 these things that we look at or these things that, read, that we read that remind us that somewhere down the road what we really long for and what we really hope for in our heart is, is a great, happy ending. And regardless of how sophisticated we might come or how many criticisms of movies and of books we might read by those who are critics who, who refer to movies like It's a Wonderful Life or anything like that as, as sort of uh, you know, naive and you know, romantic and idealistic and, and, and in some ways maybe they're right. But in the end, we all want the happy ending. And why do we want that? Why do we want that? Because somewhere down the road, we want our life. We want all of life. We want our family. We want, we want everyone to experience a happy ending. It resonates inside of us. It's, it, it's what we, we long for. It, it, it's what we yearn for is that one time all of the wrongs will be made right, that all of the injustices will be met with justice, that good will overcome evil, that light will overcome darkness. And what the Gospels, in sharing with us, 
this story about the birth of Jesus that we believe to be 100% true deep in our hearts and soul and mind. That in telling us that story, it's telling us that the story, that, that desire for that kind of an ending is true. For those that have faith in Christ Jesus will be made sons of the great King of the universe. And that He will not only bring them into His family and call them His sons and daughters, His children, but He's also going to make them heirs. That of His riches, they too will be enriched. Of His blessings, He will pour them out on top of them. Their hearts will overflow with love and there will be righteousness as far as they can see. That one day, all of the bad things that happen in this world will be brought to the place where as if they had never happened. But the spirit tip begins, as Lewis would say, with a young maid in northern Galilee at her prayers when an angel shows up and says, you will conceive and it will be the Son of God that you will bear birth to. We're going to sing another song that praises God for the greatness of of what happened in Bethlehem those 2,000 years ago. And while we're doing it, some of our shepherds are going to come down here to the front. And if there are spiritual needs that you might have, or, or even the need for you to get your life right with God so that you can become a son or a daughter and an heir of all of the things that God has in store for you, you want ultimately to find yourself in God's presence in that, ha- that, that heaven that He has prepared for all of us. And that it be the happiest of all endings. And we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we praise God together. Let's stand and sing. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant.